Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today I've caught Dr. Stephanie Johnson, author, speaker, and professor of management at the University of Colorado Boulder's Leeds School of Business, Stephanie is one of the world's leading authorities on improving diversity and inclusion in the vast realm of business. She's published over 70 journal articles and book chapters for the likes of Harvard Business Review and Journal of Applied Psychology and has achieved coverage with media giants such as The Economist, The Guardian, Time and CNN. Her learning partners on diversity and inclusion include Netflix, Starbucks and P&G, amongst many other household brand names. Stephanie is also a wannabe fashion designer and comedian and says, I like making pillows. It's easy. They're just so square. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thanks so much, Giles. That's the best introduction I've ever had. (laughs) We'll talk about pillows later. Um, Right, seven quickfire questions, Stephanie. Mac or PC? Um, PC. Cats or dogs? Cats. Work or play? Work. Colorado or California? California. Woodstock or nudge stock? Nudge stock, for sure. Is the correct answer. Professor or comedian? Professor. And this one's a bit unfair. Diversity or inclusion? Inclusion. Cool. Well, that was that was a breeze. Yeah, I was a little tripped up on the Mac because I use an iPhone, but I don't own a Mac computer. So Yeah, we've had that before, actually, where, I mean, it's not really a, a fair binary question nowadays because of that very reason. Um, so, so, Stephanie, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first teaching job? Oh, God, my first job was working at a, it's like a fake Chuck E. Cheese, which is a kid's like play area where there's video games and a ball pit and snacks. And I worked there when I was in high school to earn money to pay for like SATs, which are college placement exams and college applications. And it was the most cruel job in the world, uh, except a bunch of my friends also ended up joining and starting to work there, which made it a little more bearable. But definitely the ball pit is probably the most disgusting place on earth because <laughs> kids, you know, a lot goes on in that ball pit. Uh, first teaching job <laughs> was, I, I mean, I taught classes when I was a PhD student at Rice, which is phenomenal. Um, so, I mean, that was like a teaching job. And then University of Wisconsin in Madison. Okay, and, and um, presumably you enjoyed that a lot more than getting involved with the ball pit. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> to me, teaching just is, has so much positive feedback while you're doing it because people respond. Hopefully they're learning. They ask questions. You know, maybe they laugh at my, my jokes. Like, okay, you know, I, as you said, I, I like to try <laughs> to be funny. So <laughs> the students are a captive audience, and I think they, they politely laugh when I try to joke. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. And does it help their grades? Yes. <laughs> yeah, of course it does. <laughs> Wonderful. And so, so did you always want to be a teacher of sorts? You, you know, that's a good question. I always wanted to get a PhD. Because um, yes. when I was in high school, the, like, the internet was invented. <laughs> or at least I first got access to dial-up internet. And I saw this webpage uh, for the Society of Industrial Organizational Psychology, which is... Um, the like trade organization for workplace psychologists. I think in the UK, they're usually called workplace or organizational psychologists. And to me, it just seemed like the most interesting field, the perfect like type of job. You could be a consultant or work inside a company or be a teacher. And so 
I decided, okay, I'm going to go get a PhD, which is pretty funny because neither of my parents went to college. And so I don't really know why I thought like, obviously I should have a PhD. When, as soon as I got into college, I was like, yes, I definitely want to do research. And I admired so many of my teachers that I wanted to teach. And I tried being a consultant for like maybe a year. It wasn't quite for me, the lifestyle, you know, traveling a lot and our particular brand of consulting was to work with companies that were currently under uh, EEO violations. So they violated some sort of diversity requirement. And now they were trying to improve. We were trying to improve their selection processes because the federal government told them they had to. So we weren't always the most welcome people. <laughs> so I thought, okay, definitely teaching because the students welcomed me to class. And that's makes it a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. That's um that's really interesting actually because often I mean we'll talk about, you know, all sorts of biases and assumptions, but but I had clearly wrongly assumed that perhaps your parents or extended family had all either achieved PhD or or had maybe gone quite deep into education, but but clearly not. That wasn't the case. Nope, not at all. And something you're particularly interested in and, and, and study is the effects of un conscious biases, mostly in the evaluation of women and minorities, um, clearly from your consultancy time, is that something that's always been quite central to, to just your headspace, to your what you're interested in, what you've then subsequently studied and what you've advised and taught? Yeah, not always. So I'll say when I went to do PhD, I wanted to be very, like, I guess, fit in to the kind of masculine um, stereotypes of being a management professor. And so studying diversity was kind of, maybe that's a little more like feminine, not mainstream. Um, People said it's like fringe. Now today, you know, in 2019, I think it's the most central topic to organizations, but this is like Mm. year 2000. So we're like, you know, no one cares that much about that topic. Um, Maybe except the people who are affected by it. And so I, yeah, tried, of course. I tried not to study it. And in fact, one of our really top, top professors at my PhD school, which was Rice, studied diversity and inclusion, or maybe inclusion didn't exist, but diversity, and tried to get me to participate in her research studies. And one, I dressed up as a pregnant woman and applied for jobs to look at pregnancy discrimination, just like all sorts of clever experiments that she ran. But I like refused to study diversity because instead I wanted to study leadership, which felt like, you know, this is very serious. Like people love leadership and I love leadership. So I just like in an effort to fit in, decided leadership, leadership, leadership. Unfortunately, if you try to study leadership, there's always going to be gender differences and race differences if you have enough diversity in your sample. And so what I was really focused on was trying to find how, you know, how can we create the most effective leaders? And consistently, I would find that the things that would predict leader effectiveness or promotions or whatever for male leaders was really quite different than what predicted for female leaders. And there were other just, you know, disparities, whereas women with higher scores than their male counterparts wouldn't get promotions and all sorts of things. So I probably in 2006, I was like, all right, I need to figure this out. I'm just going to solve this gender issue that I keep finding in my research. And then I'll get back to my serious work. And like, obviously I haven't solved it. <laughs> I've tried hard, but it's a big issue to tackle. And it's really become more of my central focus. I think especially after kind of giving up the desire to just fit in, then I could really embrace the fact that this is what I want to study. Yeah, well, that's interesting. And especially that it was almost as if whichever direction you went off in, you you kept coming back to the same central issue. Yeah. Before we dig too deeply into that, can we start with, just for the benefit of our listeners, can we start by discussing bias and, and what we mean by bias? Because there is, for example, both unconscious bias and status quo bias. which affects everything, certainly that we will then move on to. So can you explain what they are exactly? Yeah, so 
I think biases are most simply a cognitive mechanism to make sense of an overwhelmingly complex world. So um, cognitive psychologists estimate that your human mind is processing about 11 million pieces of information at a time. And obviously you couldn't make sense of that. And so you only are consciously aware of a small fraction of that. And then even the stuff you're aware of, to quickly make sense of it, you use past experiences. So um, you like the things you like are probably things you've been exposed to before because something that you've never seen is going to take a lot of cognitive effort to understand it. So it's just, they're just quick heuristics to try to make sense of things. And there's lots of biases, right? There's like confirmation bias. If you know something and you hear it, you're like, yes, that's true. And there's um, a bias that if you look back at past events, you're like, oh yeah, I knew that was going to happen. And so there's lots that aren't, that have nothing to do with race or gender. But what I really focus on is those biases. And those two are just mental associations. Like if you've gone to a hospital, you probably interacted with nurses. They were mostly women. They were wearing green scrubs. If you've had surgery, you've interacted with a surgeon. It's, it's probably a male. He's wearing white. And so if you're in a room quickly and you need help, you're going to use those associations to figure out who's the surgeon, who's the nurse. Because asking everyone, just like that would take forever. Right? You walk to everyone in the waiting room. Are you a doctor? Are you a nurse? Can you give me pain medication? So instead, you just try to use these quick um, associations. But that becomes an issue because it, I'd say in most of the world, there's a very consistent theme of which group is the highest status. And so who's most likely to be a surgeon? It's a white guy. Who's most likely to be a professor? It's a white guy. CEO, presidential candidate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, because we all have those associations from what we've seen, it means that lots of, say, women surgeons, for example, get called nurses. And when you're thinking of who should we promote to chief surgeon, the way your brain works, all of the people who come to mind are those that are most prototypical. So you run through a roster of all the white men in your um, organization. And so it becomes a little more, I guess, effortful to bring those unconscious biases, things you don't know that are going on in your mind to the forefront so that you can avoid them. Conscious bias, I would say, is more like I don't want to have a female surgeon because I don't want to die on the table. Right? I know that I don't trust a woman surgeon. And that sounds insane, but I mean, people say this, like people say it to female pilots, for example, like you feel a little more nervous when your pilot jumps on the um, intercom and says, oh, you know, three hours and it's a woman. Like people start to feel like, oh my gosh, are we going to make it? Because it's a female pilot. And maybe they'll be more conscious, like more of what we think of as typical sexism and racism. So, I mean, bias in, in, in itself then, by its own definition, is, is, is merely a, you know, it's, it's that shortcut, that mental shortcut, that heuristic. So then it's, it's, it's neither negative or positive, really. It's a simple way for our brain to make decisions faster. However, as you've just so um, articulately explained, they do surface as or have a very negative impact so it must be very hard to change those associations that we have that leads to these biases then. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, even if you try to change it, people are really awful at adjusting. So, you know, you might way overshoot it. Like, oh, I know that I think of male, white male surgeons. So when I'm evaluating this female candidate, I don't want to be biased. And so I'm going to like accept every female candidate and then maybe you come back to like, well, I don't want to hire them just because they're women. So I'm going to accept no female candidates. And so you're kind of like boomerang back and forth because you don't really know where the, I guess, truth is. You just know that, well, man, now I'm conscious of these unconscious biases. And so like, what do I do? And so what I really focus on is you have to change the structure around it because you can't, I don't know, it's hard to adjust an unconscious bias in your mind because you may not even know exactly what the unconscious bias is, but you can create systems like, you know, when you're evaluating surgeons for moving the names of the applicants. And so you don't know if it's a male or female, and then you, you can actually make an informed decision, right? Or 
um, making sure that you have the very specific criteria that you want in, say, if you're hiring or promoting, you know, we want someone with this many years experience. We want someone um, who has this patient satisfaction record who's killed fewer than 30 people, whatever. And then judge each applicant against those criteria rather than just like holistically looking at an applicant and saying like, I like this person, but I'm not really sure why. Um, and we find there's actually less bias against women and people of color when you do that. Like when you actually evaluate people against criteria rather than just saying, ah, this person, I'm not sure they, they're going to be a culture fit or I'm not sure they're exactly what we're looking for. I don't know why. Um, then you end up with a lot of bias. And, and you spoke of, and it was the first time I'd heard your wonderful ABCs of breaking bias. You spoke about that and presented it at, at Nudgestop this year. Can you explain what those ABCs are to our listeners? Yeah, for sure. These are, I think it, it's a ABCs because it's a nice heuristic to help remember them. But Absolutely, yeah. But a, see, you remembered it. That's pretty good. But I did, yeah. <laughs> is admit it. So, um, I mean, if you refuse to admit it's even possible that you have unconscious bias because you are, you know, some superhuman, then you're never going to try to adjust for it, right? So you have, I mean, that's just like a basic starting point to recognize we all have these biases and although it's natural, like it's not okay to let them affect our decisions. So you admit it. Second one I say is block it, which is what I just talked about, essentially changing systems in a way that you can circumvent um, biases. So you don't have to do it mentally, but the structure of the system actually does it for you. And for that, I most often talk about blinding um, and I can come, I'll talk more about blinding, but the C is count it. So you're actually measuring what change in the numbers has occurred since you started blocking it. And so you can even set goals. Like I want to make sure that, you know, 30% of surgeons are women. So I want 30% of my staff of surgeons to be women or, you know, 40%. Hmm. So setting numeric goals and then measuring your progress after you've made changes against those goals. And that interestingly, like, you know, in marketing, people measure everything, right? Like how many, um, people in this demographic did we sell to? How many people clicked but didn't purchase, right? And let's set a goal for increasing sales in Scotland because um, we're missing that mark that market. But when it comes to people, I guess it feels a little creepy for HR people, maybe like going back to 1980s quota kind of feeling that they don't want to measure it. They don't want to set goals. But of all of the interventions that have ever been tested, for diversity, that's actually the one that has the biggest effect is setting goals because you, you know, you know how you're doing. If something's not working or if something actually is hurting your progress that you're aiming for, you, you might want to stop doing that. Right. So you need to measure it. And then the S is support it. And that's just having more of a outspoken view on supporting diversity inclusion because a lot of people maybe less so now but um a lot of people are like I'm not against diversity I'm you know or I'm colorblind or genderblind I'm not against it but that's like a very different attitude than I'm really for it like I I know the data I know there's bottom line benefits return on assets stock prices sales for companies that are more diverse so you should be actually for diversity. And then if you're for it, it shouldn't be like a secret, even though we often don't want to talk about, I'm super pro-diversity, just like, you know, my, I didn't want to study diversity because I didn't want to be that person and confirm the stereotype, you know, here's the Hispanic woman studying diversity. But today I would just say, I, yeah, I think you have to be openly, proactively positive and supportive of it. So that you send a signal to other people of like, this is okay for you to do. And this is something that we expect you to embrace and work toward. It's kind of like a, a role modeling, I guess, because I specifically think of it in terms of leadership, leaders being supportive um, and outspoken about diversity. So that's ABC and then S, ABCs. And where, do, where would you say across those ABCs then, where would you say there is the most friction 
as I mean, as you've explained there, people confuse not being against something as the same as being for something, which, which clearly there there isn't. So that might suggest that a just admitting is yeah. is, is is a huge hurdle for for lots of people. Yeah, I, I think that is probably still the greatest hurdle. I, you know, I think in the last three years, I'd say in, in the U.S. and you know maybe this is true in the U.K. as well, but I think we've started to see really egregious instances of sexism and racism so that people are, I guess, to me, a little more willing to admit it um, than they were four years ago. I mean, four years ago or five years ago, I don't even think people wanted to admit that sexism existed. They're like, oh, yeah, we've solved that. You know, <laughs> um, is sexual harassment a problem? No, I don't think so. Are women paid less? No, I doubt it. And then, you know, Me Too happens and more companies are starting to do pay gap analyses. And um, we see like a lack of women leaders that's, you know, been put in the media so much that it's hard to not admit that sexism exists. And then if sexism exists, can you really say that you're like the one extraordinary person who doesn't hold any biases? I think, I don't know, maybe most people I would think most people can admit it, but I don't know. I don't know most people, I guess. I'd go with the A if you can, if you can do that. But I think that's the hardest. <laughs> that's the hardest first step is admit it. And then maybe also like, so some people admit it and they like embrace it. So I know racism exists because I'm a racist and that's not really what I'm going for. <laughs> So you touched on, um, you touched, well, we, we, we keep kind of overlapping a little bit into diversity and inclusion for, for precisely the right logical reasons. So how would you, how do you define diversity and inclusion and what is the difference between them? Yeah, so I think diversity is just numbers. And do you have different groups in your organization? So the number of women that, or percent of women, the percent of men, the percent of whites, the percent of Hispanics, the percent of Asians, maybe even the percent of people from with a global background, expats. Those are, I mean, I think that's diversity. It's just, do you have people from different backgrounds, even like different educations, right? Like ev- not everyone you hire needs to be from Oxford. You can hire people from Edinburgh. So that's, that's it. That's simple. And diversity it's not a simple problem to solve, but it's a simple thing to measure, at least. Right. Inclusion has more to do with the experience of people who are working in the organization. And there can be, you can have inclusion without diversity. So there's some, you know, totally homogenous organizations in the U.S. and probably everywhere uh, where they have no diversity. And so, of course, everyone feels super included because they're all the same. But I guess I only think of inclusion diversity and inclusion, that term, meaning you must have diversity first. And then the inclusion question is for the people who you have are, do they feel like they can be their unique selves? So I'm going to frame it in terms of uniqueness and belonging. And what I mean by that being your unique self is, are you invited to share your different views and the benefits that your diversity brings to the table. So your people want to know what you have to say. They make sure you're in meetings. They make sure you're making decisions or a part of the decision um, in a way that you're like a full member of the group. And they, they recognize the fact that you are unique. I think the colorblind and genderblind views of, or don't ask, don't tell, like all I think that's really outdated. Um, Mm. And to me, that's, I feel like I still hear that a lot. Like, oh, no, it's cool. I'm totally gender blind. I love that you're talking about diversity. I'm totally gender blind. But that, first of all, is not admitting it. But second, the way I think of it, if someone says they're colorblind, so I'm Hispanic, um, in Hispanic meaning from, in my particular case, um, from Mexico, because you could also be, Spaniard, right, in, in Europe. But um, if someone tells me they're colorblind, I think what they're essentially saying is they see me the same as a white person, right? Because you're not colorblind to Caucasians, I don't think. 
like you would never tell a Caucasian, oh, dude, it's cool. I'm colorblind. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> you say it to someone of a different race. You say it to an Asian guy, I'm colorblind. I think what you're actually saying is I see you as equal to a white person. And I think that implies that that wouldn't be the case, right? That the norm and the ideal is to be white. And I'm, I don't really see you as less than that, which is, I don't know, I guess that seems insulting to me. Like, of course you're not less than that. Like, but then it also, at the same time, I think negates the fact that women or people of color or persons with disabilities, you don't want to be blind to that difference. Because if you are like, what's the point of hiring diverse people if you just want everyone to think and act the same? And so instead of saying, well, I don't care that you're a woman, it's like, all right, from a marketing perspective, what can we learn from you as a woman? Right. That's an important voice um, if you're trying to market to women. So that's the uniqueness part of it. Letting people be themselves, have a real say. And then the belonging part is do people feel like they're part, like a valued member of the group? Like I fit, I fit together with this organization. I'm committed to this organization. They're committed to me. And so you feel like, you know, you're actually part of the group. You feel empowered. Um, you feel like as your true self is really valued, not just you as a person who's trying to fit in. Inclusion is clearly a much more long-winded answer than it's just numbers, but it's letting people feel like they belong as their true selves. And as again, just a quick nod back to Nudstock, you presented so much solid evidence about how diversity improves the bottom line, particularly diversity at the top of an organization. Yeah. No, you're right. There's, I mean, benefits for having more women in the C-suite, um, more women and people of color on boards. There's, I'm sure there's also a benefit of having people of color in the C-suite. It's just really hard to test things like that because it's such a rare occurrence. Um, but generally the benefits that you see to bottom line outcomes like stock prices, val- company value are greater for people of color than they are for women. Probably because there's yeah. more women to begin with, but um, but even you know in the at the executive level, and even throughout the organization, just of your mass employee base, companies that are more diverse just perform better, and in particular, they're more innovative, which I think is essential for companies to persist today in an environment that's constantly changing. You get more innovation when you have different views. And I think that that should be like, that's enough of an argument, right? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. God, yeah. I mean, you presented so much stuff. And the uh, one stat I recall that was terrifying was that there's more people called David and Steve leading FTSE 100 companies than than women and ethnic minorities. Yes, that's right. Amazing. That's US, it's the same. It's um, John and David in the US in the Fortune 500. Wow. I also I also really liked actually and could understand and see logic in the is it pronounced ash the ash experiments. Oh yeah. Yeah, so the this was a really old experiment by a psychologist who essentially drew three lines on a chalkboard and said and then there's a fourth line and he asked participants which line is the same length as you know this fourth line line x, right? And this there's a really obvious answer it, it works better with a visual, but let's just imagine that one line is clearly the same length and the other two are clearly not. And then the room of participants was actually filled with like three Confederates who are in on the experiment and then only one real participant. And so the first three Confederates all give the wrong answer, the same wrong answer. And what Ash found is that fourth person who's a participant would knowingly give the wrong answer. Like they know it's not right, but they'd rather go along with the people who came before them than, than say the right answer. And I think that's what we see. And maybe it's a group think or just general conformity. When you think that everyone views something the same and you're the one person, you think you're the only person who thinks differently, like you're not always willing to say it. And so why that's related to diversity is someone just redid that study last year and made the group of Confederates either all white guys or diverse. 
And they saw two things. One, that conformity is generally down since, you know, the 1950s and 60s. But second, that when the people who were Confederates were diverse and you were the white participant, you were significantly less likely to conform. You're more likely to be like, I don't know what these people see. (laughs) The answer is clearly this. And I think that's powerful. I mean, that's, that's why, or at least part of the reason why groups are better able to make good decisions when there's diversity. Because you have like people who are willing to say, you know, I think I disagree. And there's a bias called shared information bias. So this is, you know, another bias that has nothing to do with race or gender, but it's that when people are similar to you, you assume that you share the same exact information. We both know the same facts, right? That's what I figure because we're similar. But when someone's different from you, you assume they know nothing, right? You assume because they're different. Are, you may know as much as me, but the overlap is almost zero. And so you share more unique information. And so there was a study where it was like a murder mystery game. And to solve the murder mystery, you had these little note cards and everyone had different note cards. And essentially to get to the correct answer, you would have had to share the information on your unique note cards. And then there's some overlapping information. What they found is when groups were really similar, especially it was race, racially, they tended to share less information. And so they didn't get the answer solved because they didn't share those cards that only they had because they assumed everyone knows this. But when people were diverse, you were a lot, when groups were diverse, they were a lot more likely to share those tidbits of information that only they had. And so they were more likely to come to the correct answer. <laughs> I think it was a cool study. That's a, yeah, really cool study. It's amazing, isn't it? And, and actually, I really like that example that you gave and also the disclaimer that you gave alongside or within your talk, which I think had our table in stitches where you, you pronounced that uh, with alongside a photo of your son, that he's a tiny white dude <laughs> and you love him. So the point being that it's very easy when you are listening to someone talk about and promote these importance of diversity and inclusion to feel like you're anti-white or anti-whatever the mass might be. Yeah. But actually, as those studies demonstrate you're merely you're merely sharing solid evidence about the huge benefits and importance of diversity inclusion and it's almost how it's framed in a mindset so it's not a case of I'm talking about diversity and inclusion therefore I'm right and you white man are wrong yeah it's it's merely it's merely a case of this is this is this is there's so many benefits to this and it's not just benefits from a society perspective or a culture perspective it's uh, there's business reasons there's so many reasons why having that broad mixture of people of all shapes and sizes and colors and races and genders is 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 a positive thing yeah which really is wonderful and, and that you know that's a great thing no i totally agree and it's i mean you're right on that it's not diversity if you have a team of all women so in some you know if you're going to be going back to my nurse example, if you have a nursing team of all women, you know, the women might think like, oh, you know, this is great. We need all women because the power of women and people do say that. Um, but you still don't have diversity, like assuming all, all of the women are the same race, a whole bunch of women, just because they're women is not diverse. They're the same, right? Because like people, a person can't be diverse. You're only diverse in relation to others. And so I, I believe the flip, is obviously true as well. If you have a very homogenous group of women, throw in some men and you're going to get a better decision. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I've heard you describe yourself as a feminist who doesn't hate men. Yes. <laughs> that's a nicer and a simpler way of, of, of putting it. We've, uh, we've recently spoken to both Cindy Gallup and, and Jane Evans, uh, who are specifically from the advertising industry. Yeah. Do you have any experience of, our, of the marketing and advertising industry and, and in particular diversity within it? Yeah. So I think it, the marketing industry tends to be very homogeneously white. Like in, I think in the US that's true and very masculine or like male dominated. Even though I think women make like 70% of purchases, it's, so it seems like you'd want some women to like shake it up. But maybe the 
I don't work as a marketer, but I did read this story that was from the UK of a marketing um, firm that brought in like a new female um, lead. Her name was Joe Wallace. And she basically came in and was like, we're done with this pale male, pale stale male situation. We're um, getting rid of the toxic masculinity and we're going to make this a more diverse place. And, and, you know, there's good reason to have the organization be more diverse, but there's also, I mean, you also have to think about how you're framing things. Like if you've been a white guy your whole life, which is true for most white guys, (laughs) then, and someone comes in and is like, your, your day is over. Your day is done. We're going to do things differently now. And the way you've been doing things isn't just done. It was wrong. Then I, I don't know. How would anyone not feel super attacked? And, you know, in that case, um, and I say case because it's gone to become a legal case that men who are laid off after that um, have sued the organization. But also there's a case in the U.S. at Google with James Damore, who was, he wrote this Google memo. I don't know if it got the same amount of press in the U.K. as it did here, but Basically, he said that he was experiencing the same thing, that he went to leadership training and they said, um, no more toxic masculinity. We're not going to reward leadership that is um, like individualistic. We're going to only focus on things that are more collaborative and, you know, men, your day is done. And he ended up also getting fired for writing some awful things in a memo, but he's suing too. And I think it's just like... I just think there's a better way to approach it than saying that you're this group is wrong and here we have the new improved way because you probably need a mix of both ways. And there's like really great psychology research that shows that if you just threaten someone in any way, like physically or emotionally or mentally, that the part of their brain, um, the amygdala goes into this fight or flight mode. And you like really, truly, you're no longer listening. Like you can't take in new information because you're in crisis mode. And so I I think that's what we come to a lot when we're trying to increase diversity. And I want you to listen to me talk about unconscious bias and I attack you. You've just like turned off that person's potential of understanding what you're saying or taking in new information because instead they're just sitting there (laughs) like afraid or feeling like they want to attack you back or run away. And so they're not actually open to what you're saying. Like truly they're not, they can't be. Yeah. I think the, um, I think the industry is, is a similar um, split here. It is very uh, male, white dominated. Funny enough, our recent guest, Jane Evans is, is she's absolutely wonderful. She's, she's recently launched what she calls the uninvisibility project and being a woman over 50 uh, she sees says that they are the most neglected uh, segment in, in 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 marketing probably globally but this is specifically UK and she's proven that women over 50 are actually the most powerful consumer group on the planet who buy 47 percent of everything and so she's put this team together and, and, a, and a lovely quote of hers, from a recent interview was if the ad industry can't see the disruptive power of employing a gobby older woman, then I'll profit from my voice myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's great. Yeah, no, she's wonderful. You should check her out. So where are we at then? What needs to change and how can it change? Because the problem clearly is that companies, you know, almost treat it as a ticking a box or checking a box exercise. What can everyone do to improve diversity and inclusion? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's still progress to be made on the diversity part. And that is, you know, finding better ways to select employees that actually bring in more diversity. Um, Really examining your candidate pool. We tend to uh, have networks that are really similar to us. And one of the top ways we recruit people is through our existing networks. So you just rep, you self-replicate, right? It doesn't matter what race or gender group you are. You bring in people who are just like you. But there's other ways to create a candidate pool. 
um, that is more diverse and recruiting from more. Is, is that similar to the, you know, the, that kind of echo chamber effect that we get on social media algorithms where it shows us stuff that we already like? Totally, yes. So you never see any other views. It's, it's wild. Yeah. Um, and then thinking about retention. So there's higher turnover rates for women and people of color compared to white men. So, you, you know, you go through all this work. Let's just say you've tried to change your recruiting pool fix your hiring mechanisms to be um, more fair, treat everyone the same, and you bring in a more diverse group of people and then they leave, then like you've just wasted a ton of money, right? Because the, re- the recruiting and selection costs a lot of money and then losing a valued employee can cost up to like a year of their salary after they're gone to replace them and train new people and stuff like that. So to me, yes, we have to do the recruiting and selection at all levels of the organization, but it really comes down to their retention. And I, to me, that's just a leadership issue. Um, going back to you know, my first love of studying leadership, I've never gotten away from this view that this is all about leadership and what leaders can do to create more inclusive workspaces where everyone can be their unique self and fully belong. And I think those you know, leaders need to be open to a different view, a different way of doing things. And, you know, in my experience, they really are open to it. Like I work with leaders all the time, still doing kind of like consulting work as a non-consultant. And, you know, the probably the thing I hear the most is like, I would love to do that. Someone needs to tell me how. I don't understand, like this is them talking. I don't understand why someone wouldn't feel like they belong because like, I always feel like I belong, right? And I don't understand this idea of allowing people to be their unique selves, because how could you not be your unique self? And I think that is, it totally makes sense if you're in the majority group to not understand those concepts, because like, how often do you think about your identity or what it means to be a white man in the UK? Like, it's just a weird question, right? Like, I've even asked men to do this. Tell me about like, what it feels like to be a man. And they're just like, I don't really understand what the question, what do you mean? Whereas like women and people of color, they tend to think about these things a lot. Um, so I think people want to do it. They just kind of need a how to, and I don't know if you know this, but I've just written a book um, that basically does that. So it's called Inclusify and it's essentially tips to pivot um, for leaders to create more inclusive organizations. And so it's not like start totally over because you're a terrible leader, but it's like, if this is your leadership style, you could actually capitalize on the strengths that you have, but become more inclusive by doing these few things. That's amazing. When, when, when's Inclusify? When was Inclusify released? So it's, it's not released. It'll be released um, in June of next year. It takes forever uh, by Harper. <laughs> <laughs> which is a great publishing company and you can buy it on pre-sale on Amazon. Okay. Buy, please buy cool. copies. Yeah, no, that's, that's brilliant. I, um, I, I'm, I'm actually pleased it's, it's, it's not been released yet because I was, I was shocked when you said that, that we hadn't, that it would have reflected badly on us and our research team here. <laughs> no, you really do good research if you know about my pillows. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Thank you for digging us out there. Well, funny enough, I was talking, so exactly that point about being in the majority, you, then, then, then how would you reach that kind of, you know, be in that orientated state to know, to see it from a different perspective. And I was talking to a wonderfully awesome guy called Gavin, who is a animator at Ardman Animations. So the guys that make all the Wallace and Gromit and stuff. And, oh, cool. you know, the, uh, fantastic organisation. And one thing he talked about was he's very wary of making sure his son is aware of the privilege of being a white man. And he articulated it so well. He said he's going to teach him that growing up and being in this world as a white man is the equivalent of playing a computer game on the easy setting. (laughs) That's a good way to explain it to a kid. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. That just stuck with me, that did. I'm going to write that down. I think that's good. Yeah, I think I think of the same thing because, you know, my little white man who I love so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just like, he's this 
you know, super tall, big, blondish, adorable, smart, like, it's just like he has all these great advantages. And I, I don't want to like take them away, but I'm like, you, you have to see how much privilege you have. And he's like, I'm five. Stop saying <laughs> <laughs> Fine, mom, stop lecturing me. Yeah, but, you know, I think a really awesome way to do that is um, by taking an international assignment, whether it's a study abroad in school or actually working in another country or just spending a bunch of time in another country if you just, like, take a life sabbatical and go learn and live somewhere else. Because then if you don't go somewhere that there's still a white majority, or even if there is, goodness gracious, if you, if, you know, my family went and lived in Holland, I think we would see how it feels to be the different person because you're different. And then I think of like, I don't know, I have like a little anecdote that uh, a few, many, many years ago, my husband and I went to a wedding in Mexico and we're like big dancers. I love to dance. I don't know if you knew that from your research, but I love to dance. And I love salsa and swing. And my husband's a big swing dancer. But, you know, we're going to this Mexico wedding in Mexico City. He doesn't speak Spanish. He doesn't know anyone there except the groom. And they start to play music. Of course, all the music's in Spanish. And he's like, not going to dance. Like, there's just no way, right? Because, you know, Latin people, like, have some rhythm. And I think they're good dancers. He doesn't want to look like a fool, right? But they played a swing song. I think the groom, knowing my husband quite well, that he loved to swing dance, played one swing song and all the people in the room kept dancing because why wouldn't they, right? But that also made him dance. And it was kind of like, all right, if all you guys are willing to dance to an English swing song, still doing you know salsa to a swing song and you don't care, like then he kept dancing afterward. Like oh. he still can't salsa or rumba, but... He's <laughs> dancing because I think it broke down the barrier of feeling like, oh my gosh, this I'm the other, I'm this weird person and I can't actually speak to anyone and no one's listening to me because it's only speak English and creating like a space where it's like, yeah, it's okay. Like we recognize and we value that difference because we're even going to play music that reflects your culture and preferences. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think perhaps taking an assignment abroad would do precisely that because people need a reference. They need a reference point. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're, you've got nothing that's, that you can compare against or compare to. Right. Yeah. So so let's, let's touch quickly then on, on, on life as a professor, because not only have you been awarded nearly three million dollars that, that we're aware of in, in external funding, you you also donate or often donate money that you make from speaking straight back to the university to fund even more research, which is hugely admirable. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I try. <laughs> well, it's fantastic. And it, all this research, it just, it, it, it makes progress, doesn't it? That's why it's so important. Well, that's, the, I mean, that's the hope. So if someone asks me to come speak to their organization about my research, I think it's not about me, right? Like, it's about the research. They support the research. So I will often say, you know, rather than paying me a speaker fee, which suggests it's something about the speaker, you are welcome to make a donation to my research fund, which none of the money goes to me in terms of like salary. It's only to fund research. And I think, you know, cause that's the point is they want to, they want to know what the research says. And they want to support the research so they can give the money to do research. And then it's tax deductible. Let's, I'm wary that we're on 50 minutes already and we've got some questions to get to. But before we do, can I just ask you about Nudgestock? So Gasp has been promoting Nudgestock since day dot. And we we go every year, huge fans of Rory and and all sorts of people involved in the festival itself. So what what was your impression of it? Presumably you spoke this year. Presumably it was the first time you've attended. It was, yeah. I mean, I loved it. I can't believe that you could get that much excitement about a bunch of, well, it's like a TED, it feels like a TED environment, you know, a bunch of smart people who want to learn things and a bunch of people who are willing to share their information, but in a way that's just like so accessible. Cause I, so there, you know, there were marketing talks, big data, um, 
thick data and the economy, your Nobel laureate economist who spoke. And like, I would not be able to understand either of those topics because I'm not a marketer and I'm not an economist, but they, the way they shared the information was just so easy to understand. And then even more so, more importantly, create action. So everyone really focused on, so here's like the whole data and stories, but here's what you do about it. And at least to me, I walked away being like, oh my gosh, I want to do all these things. Like just capitalize on these little nudges to be a better, smarter person. So but I just loved it. It's far for me to go. I don't know if I can go next year, but and I loved all the candy in the back of the room. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the only reason half the team here attend. <laughs> uh, so Stephanie, I have a couple of listener questions. Yeah. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So as usual, we've selected two. And I'll start with Jenny. And so Jenny says, do you think you will always work in the area of research and education? You're not tempted to go to the corporate side of things. <laughs> so Jenny obviously won't have heard the start of our yeah. interview where you touched on that. So yeah. yeah. So what say you? I I don't know if I'll do the academia thing forever. It's a, I think it's like a tough life to give up because you're just surrounded by super smart people and your job is to think about the questions that you find to be the most important. Like, how is that a job? You know, <laughs> I feel like yeah. it's like such a gift, but I have certainly thought about going into like, I'll say corporate America or corporate UK or whatever uh, and toyed with that from time to time because of the real potential for impact. So like if you're working inside a company, if I'm working inside a company, I could use all this great information that I research and, you know, my like ivory tower and type on my little computer and actually do it right. And change the outcomes of things and affect people's lives and improve this company's profitability. And it's, I like kind of imagine from my desk that that somehow happens out there, you know, like people are using my work to try and make things better, but it's not tangible. I never really see it. And so there's a lot of days where I'm like, well, especially when I see like tens of people read an article that I spent hundreds of hours on. Why did I write that article if no one read it? Right. So I feel like there's a real exciting possibility to create real change. Yeah. You almost feel like you, well, it sounds like anyway, you feel like you maybe get a step closer to the controls. Yeah. Yeah. Question two is from Tom and Tom asks, have you encountered bias, sexism and roadblocks to your career or invites to speaking events due to your gender? Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> All the time. So um, I've just been thinking about like this story, you know, when you asked me about my first teaching job, it made me think of the story that I interviewed for a job and I won't say the school, but it was in the South. Um, and first of all, the job interview was in a hotel room because it was at a conference, but not a conference room, like a hotel room. I go in and, you know, it's like kind of creepy, but um, the people who are interviewing me, they're kind of like really awkward and kind of looking at each other and they have my resume and they're like fussing with it. And finally I'm like, okay, what's going on? Is there something wrong? Do you need to go? And one of the guys says, you know, we just thought you'd be older. And I'm like, I thought about it. And I mean, fairly, to be fair, I think I was like 25 or 26 at the time. Cause I finished my PhD when I was 25 and then maybe this is the next summer or something. I said, like ever the comedian, I said, um, I will be. <laughs> nice. And then I just kept going. I was like, I'll be older tomorrow. I'm just, yeah. And they, I like smiling and like, this is so funny. And they just were like, all right, thank you. We're done. <laughs> really? Yeah. They, were, they didn't think I was that funny. Um, other things as well. Like, you know, I mentioned the surgeon and the nurses. Like I get mistaken for a non-professor like all the time. I was giving a talk at my university to a group of women and someone asked me to like get them a coffee. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'll get your coffee. So I went and got her a coffee and she's like, do you know when the speaker's going to get here? And I'm like, yes, it's me. And she was like, 
course, mortified that I, she had just ordered me to get her a coffee. But when I when I finished collecting coffees, Jesus, yeah, I was like, I would have started. People <laughs> yeah. me to bring them stuff. <laughs> In classes, there's a real strong bias, I guess, against women in their teaching evaluations. I don't know if I personally experienced that much of it, but you know, there's like there's always someone in the class who calls me a sexist for saying nice things about women and not, not even like women. I love you in the class, but more like the research shows that in fact, there's tiny gender differences in um, leadership performance, slightly favoring women. And this is in our textbook. And they like call me out for being a sexist and hating white men who, you know, I don't, I love them. I live with some of them. Yes, I love it too. It's funny for speaking. I mean, I think people kind of want a woman or a person of color to talk about diversity. But I like sometimes people will ask me, hey, um, we'd love for you to come speak to our organization. We've it's really hard to find a woman to like who has qualifications to speak. And it's like, yeah, thanks. Like I'll totally do it, but it makes me feel like it's not because I am the best speaker. It's because I am the only <laughs> female speaker they could find. And so that's a little bit like, I think that kind of undercuts for me. It feels like a, a dual jab. Um, so yes, I, I think I experienced all the time. It's very surprising. Well, I suppose it's not surprising. It's just, it's just a shame when you hear those sorts of stories of, you know, of all scales. Yeah. And, and what people actually come up against but as a, as a to quote my friend Gavin I'm I'm doing this in easy mode I'm going to sneak in a third question because we keep touching on comedy and I'm an, I'm obsessed with comedy stand-ups and I'm dying to know if you have a favorite comedian yeah I think Eddie Murphy okay nice flex my age because I don't know when the last time Eddie Murphy did a big like stand I was going back it's going back but yeah I, I think I think we're probably similar ages then yeah he was he is just super funny, but then I think in a way that like pushed the envelope, but not quite too far, you know, just, just enough to be shocking, to make it compelling. Cool. And is there anyone more modern day who comes comes close at all? Yes. And, and you know, I, I can't think of his name, but he's, oh, it's Ricky, Ricky Gervais. Oh, Ricky Gervais. Okay. Nice. He's, he actually, he's from around here. He's, he's from about, probably about five miles away from where I'm sat. Oh, He's actually had loads of success in the U.S., hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, like, very dry British humor plays well. Like, I just think it's surprising and funny. I think it's hard to be a comedian unless you are a whole other scale of intellect. I think there are definitely parallels between being funny and being intelligent. And I saw a snippet of him on a, on a U.S. chat show recently where he was challenged on his atheist... I was going to say atheist beliefs, but I suppose that's a bit of an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> he simply turned it on the interviewer who identified as a Christian. And Ricky's point was there are roughly a thousand different gods worldwide that people worship. I deny a thousand of them, but I only deny one more than you because you because <laughs> you deny 999 of them. But it was just so smart. It was so smart. I loved it. It was brilliant. Great comment. Yeah, I think you're right. So the final part of the interview then, Stephanie, is our four pertinent poses. Number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? To stop trying to fit in, but just to like be myself. Yeah, I think that's it kind of comes up in different guises, that similar point, but it's 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 always nice to hear. It's good advice, very good advice. And number two is is if you could banish one thing from your industry, what would it be and why? <laughs> Teaching evaluations. Not because I don't think students' voices matter, but because like I said, they have like what's called adverse impact in the US. So they are women's score significantly lower than men and people of color score lower than whites and international folks score way lower than anyone. So that's, that sucks. And they have zero validity. So they don't actually predict anything. They're not reliable, meaning the same professor gets very different ratings from people in the class. Like if there were an overall good professor, it should be like people agree or don't agree. And even from year to year, their scores don't stay consistent. Um, and they don't predict learning. So it's basically 
a biased, you know, a questionnaire that has adverse impact that predicts nothing. And so, and we use it for performance evaluations, which in the U.S., as I learned as the consultant who worked for companies under consent decree by the EEO, it's totally illegal to use that. I thought they were ridiculous measures in my industry, but that's mad. No, it's like, it's so bad. And you're, the people who are filling it out are students who might have like gotten bad grades and so be disgruntled. And I don't know, no one ever writes like, wow, I learned a lot in this class. It was like, this, this was fun. They were, you know, so I would banish them. <laughs> Good. Number three then. So other than Inclusify, which we will put the pre-order link to on this episode's listing, Thank you. are there any books that you would recommend? Oh, yeah. Um, I, so I only, pretty much only read nonfiction books, but I love them all. So <laughs> there's a book, uh, Dolly Chu wrote, The Person You Mean to Be, and it's about bias also. And it's, I think her subhead is something along the line of how to be a goodish person. You know, you're never going to be a per- just like try to be good. <laughs> and uh, I love that. And then Good to Great, which is a really old, old pot management book um, that Jim Collins wrote. Um, that is probably the part of the reason I always wanted to write a book is because I read that book and I'm like, this is, it's just so cool. Like he went into companies and it's his insight or interpretation of the data of like what made companies great, but it's just super insightful. And I think kind of timeless. A lot of the companies have, you know, since gone under and suck now, but um, at the time it was just, just such a great blend of research and translating it for anyone. Like I think I, I think I read it in college, but for anyone to be able to read and understand, even if you have never worked in corporate America, it's just like, it's just really accessible. Well, we'll add those links too. We always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honor, depending on your point of view, to our guest who has to give the reason why. So would you do the honors? I would dedicate it to Rory for continuing to stimulate knowledge and action through nudge stock and his book which you can put a link to that too oh alchemy absolutely i've um i've I've, i'm gonna get told off for saying this every time his book comes up but if you haven't already i highly recommend getting the audiobook version okay um so so not only does rory earn more royalties from the audiobook version as he told me himself but it's rory narrating the book oh no so as you as you'll guess with anything that involves Rory and a microphone, there's there's lots of verbal extras that you don't get in the book. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, but it's a, but it's great. As a final call to action, then everyone listening can head over to the listing via calltoaction.co or wherever you pull your podcasts in from. We'll put links up to everything we've discussed in the last hour. We'll also include Stephanie's wonderful talk at Nudstock that we've referenced that you can enjoy in full. Ogilvy have shared that online. How else can people get more Dr. Stephanie Johnson? Yeah, I have a, a website, Dr. Dr. Steph, S-T-E-F Johnson, Dr. Steph Johnson. Or they can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, still at Dr. Steph Johnson, where I like to share my research or other just fantastic research on diversity, inclusion, equality, and just like funny things that I see. Fantastic. Well, we'll add those to all of these links. So they'll all be there for people to, um, to, to easily find you. Thank you so much for joining. It's been a real pleasure and a, a complete privilege to talk to you. Well, no, thank you. And thanks for all of your great questions. Thank you finally to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do check out all of the links we've shared. Please continue to share and review the show. We truly appreciate the support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or simply email the show hello at calltoaction.co. I 
to action But I try, and I try, and I try, and I try Yeah, hey, hey. 